another day, another episode. Welcome. It's Saturday Night Out. The show was good. Let's just jump straight into it. The show that I went to on Saturday was really good. I saw the band Stone Jets at Notting Hill Arts Club. It was only about 15 or so pounds a ticket. It was only earlier that week that it was decided that it would be attended. And it worked out really well. It was one of those events where there's different circles of friends coming together and it worked out really well. I might say that a few more times in this episode. At one point, the conversation steered towards Chris Brown and Kanye West, which in certain circumstances could mean the end of the night and also mean that that group of people won't get together again. But it was a testament to the chemistry of the group that it was actually a really interesting conversation. We got to the. We went to a, a pub around the corner. Doors were meant to open at seven thirty. We went there at seven thirty. They weren't ready to open yet, so we went back to the pub. Came back about quarter to eight, eight o'clock ish. When you go to Notting Hill Arts Club, as I did back in September twenty eighteen, which still twists my melon a little bit. But when you go down to Notting Hill Arts Club, you go down some stairs. To the right is the stage. To the left is the bar area with some tables. So we sat in the bar area, and then you hear music coming from... You hear music that clearly doesn't sound recorded. And that's how you basically know, oh, okay, I guess one of the acts has started. It was a good night. I'm glad I went. Thank you to anyone who listened. And through some kind of spiritual, I don't know, way, but in listening, in participating... You played a part in encouraging me to go. I saw someone post a tweet and they quote, and then someone else quote tweeted it with a quote from Rain Fisher Kwan, who's a writer. I was all around about way of saying essentially what they talked about was how they don't write in a diary anymore because when they do so, or they don't write in a journal because they feel as though all they're doing is writing for the imaginary audience of someone who will find this journal and read through it rather than authentically or sincerely trying to record what you're going through, your thoughts. You're writing in a certain style so that it will come across entertaining to some imagined audience that you think will read through what you've written. And I think there's an element of that here, an element. This is, that's basically the entire premise of this podcast, I guess. That's what it's become anyway, where I'm just documenting the whatevers of the day with the mindset that there's some kind of audience to it. Although I do have an app that tells me just how little, if not non-existent, of an audience there is. But I do appreciate the messages I get from some of you who have listened, and you know who you are, and thank you very much for doing so. This will be another short one. I think I'll I'll try and balance out the, the 20, 30, 40-minute episodes with some 5, 10-minute ones where I just, just rattle off some quick thoughts. I've mentioned this band a few times in recent episodes. If there's anyone who still listens to each episode as it comes out, ideally, that's what I want this audience to do, to listen to each episode as it's happening. I don't think that's the case, because I can tell from the numbers of how many many people have listened to each episode. But if you have been listening, you might have noticed me mention the band Franz Ferdinand quite a few times, because that podcast I listened to about their story, I listened to the first two episodes again, because it's such a good story. And I've realised that I, they, for me personally, they are underrated. I never really gave their discography the attention I think it deserved. And I didn't really acknowledge how necessary they were to the scene. 
there's the often quoted line of Alex, the singer, saying that he wanted to make rock, like rock music for girls to dance to, which is a pretty reductive way of putting it. But it's it is an effective mantra to hold because that's what they did, and that is what I think separates that decade of quote-unquote indie rock music from the decade after and whatever indie rock is now. Indie rock music lost me around the rise of Mumford & Sons because then it stopped being about indie rock nights for the dance floor and it became something else. After that, I mean, even to this point now, like Phoebe Bridges, I like the song Kyoto. I like the music of hers that leans in that direction, but the slow, the scene as a whole, if it can even be called a scene, feels very singer-songwritery. And that doesn't really get me that much. I'm not the kind of person who would get lyrics tattooed on me or listens to a song because the narrative of it really speaks to me. I'm much more interested in the music of it and just that innate, undeniable momentum it can enforce upon you. Another person who summed up that that ethos very well is James Murphy from LCD Sound System, who said he was in the indie rock scene of the 90s. Think of bands like, I guess, post-Nirvana, around the time of Pavement. These aren't bands that are trying to make you dance at their shows. These are bands where everyone's wearing some kind of checkered or flannel shirt, and they're standing with their arms folded and just appreciating the music. And he wasn't too keen on that after point. It, it's the, he's, he makes a joke of it and says how it was like, you'd write songs that weren't in, they were in like in 5-4 timing and then it'd be in 4-4 four, four timing for one bar and then back to 5-4 or keep changing key signatures and things like that. Just intentionally obtuse sounding music to weed out the the mainstream audience, I guess, and just appeal to the hardcore fans. But then he discovered dance music and realised with dance music, it's with indie rock music, you can't really tell what's actually good because people might out try and outdo each other in liking the most obscure stuff. So you might appeal to a certain audience, but that isn't really a metric for how good your music is. Music is subjective, what's good is personal, etc., blah, blah, blah. But with dance music, you know a dance song is good if you play it and people go to the dance floor, if people move to it. That's how you know what you're doing is successful. So I think that encouraged his move towards making dance music, explicit, deliberate dance music, rather than indie rock music. So you've got that, you've got Franz Ferdinand making music for girls to dance to, and essentially the indie rock night of the 2000s was where it was at. Just wall-to-wall bangers. I've also been thinking about just how good the debut albums were of that decade. But I can't say the same for now. I don't... And that's when... That era was when you had bands in the charts for singles, not just albums. Singles, multiple singles would be in the charts. Arctic Monkeys were number one with I Bet That You Look Good on the Dance Floor. I can't remember the last time a band was in the... got in the top ten, let alone number one, in the UK charts. I guess arguably Five Seconds of Summer or something, or is it The Vamps? But I think you know what I mean if I say there's a distinction between that type of band and the bands that I'm talking about. It's it's I'm grasping at straws there. But I th- when people talk about the return of Indie Sleeves, and Indie Sleeves has become the catch-all name 
for that 2000s music, whether from the Strokes and Yeah Yeah Yeahs up to like Vampire Weekend and then Justice and the French dance music. MGMT, I think Tame Impala is the cutoff point. Tame Impala is just after Indie Sleaze, I think. But when people talk about the resurgence of that scene, I, to me, that's what it means most. The return of guitar music or rock music that was for dancing to, when there was that real fusion of those two elements that was just a joy to behold. As much as I have rediscovered a love for Franz Ferdinand, they do fall under the category of Block Party and Interpol and early Arctic Monkeys of bands that, for for me anyway, and at least as far as watching their live shows on a screen is concerned, they just don't pack the same punch live as they do when you hear them recorded. And a large part of that, for me again, just personally, seems to be that it's as if those bands are afraid of putting any distortion on their guitars. So the guitars often sound really scratchy and don't pack the punch of their recordings. And the bass is never loud enough, which is understandable in a large space. That tends to be something that is hard to capture on a film anyway. But those are the elements, because they're, they tend to be quite sparse in their instrumentation, it has to be produced really well. Block Party in particular, that debut album, Paul Epworth, did some outstanding stuff. So much so that it still hits you hard live. But if you watch a recording of it live, it's not quite the same. You can you can sense what's missing. <sighs> the last thing that's on my mind, we're still trying to keep to the rapid fire on this episode, is that at work... I have become very, very good at knowing all of the keyboard shortcuts for things I need to do. So instead of using my mouse and clicking here and there and there to do certain tasks, I can just like hold down the alt button, know what buttons to press and do the thing, whatever the thing is, in half the time. Because there's a large element of repetition to what I do. And the more you do something over and over, the better you get at it. And it's up to you to decide what it is you want to get good at. Because at the start, you won't be good. But you have to trust that if you keep getting at it, you can get as good as you are at things that don't matter to you as much. So that's what I need to do. I need to transfer that energy towards the things I want to do, rather than just the things I almost do by default. AKA, no more days off on the podcast. That's what I'm trying to lean towards so that I can just be quicker and more rapid fire with it to the point where it's almost like, you know, knowing the keyboard shortcuts and being able to just churn it out without a second thought, but still have it be good. My Lord, it's cold. I went to the gym for the first time in ages. My limp is is limping. I'm considering painkillers, but my fear is that that might make things worse. Stay tuned (laughs) as this story develops. Anyway, yeah. Thank you for listening. Go check out the Stone Jets. Go listen to Franz Ferdinand's debut. The song that's really stuck in my head by them right now is the song The Fallen. Because it starts with this incredible riff. Also, a lot of their best riffs, they sing them rather than play them. Think of the song like Do You Want To? And I can't, and now, of course, I've forgotten every other song they've ever done. But... There's a real, or even the the riff from Take Me Out. Da, 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 da. I remember that being a really big thing at some point. The most obvious example is Seven Nation Army by White Stripes. But it became a thing where audiences, crowds at festivals in particular, 
would sing the guitar riffs as well as just singing along to the lyrics. And that's a really strong sign that, hey, you've written something good here if the audience is singing along to what the guitar plays, never mind what the singer sings. Anyway, that's enough of me rattling around in my head. Thanks for listening. I will catch you on the next episode. Think warm thoughts, folks. It's, I feel it's only going to get colder. Take care.